1 Samuel chapter 21. Last week we saw Jonathan's loyalty to David. Remember King Saul had tried to kill David in the palace. He tried to kill David at home. He tried to kill David at the prayer meeting we called it. But the Lord had intervened and protected David on each of those occasions. So David went fleeing for his life. He's literally running for his life. And he slips back into where Jonathan is and he says, hey Jonathan, I think your dad's trying to kill me again. Remember that had happened before. And Jonathan had patched it up. And Jonathan said, no, he's not trying to kill you. If he was trying to kill you, certainly I would know about it. And David said, I think he's after me, Jonathan. I think we need to, let's set up a plan. So they made a plan last week. Remember what it was? The feast of the new moon was coming up. It was a big feast for the king. Everybody was going to be there that was in his court. And David said, listen, I'm not going to be there. You tell your dad, I'm not going to be there. And if he asks where I am, you just tell him you gave me permission to go on back to my family. We were doing some some sacrifices back there, and you gave me permission to go. And then we will know by how your dad responds if he's mad at me and trying to kill me or if everything's okay with me. You see, the deal was if your dad says, "Ah, no big deal, David's not here, it's no problem, then I'll know that everything's okay, that, that him and I are okay. But if your dad is angry... When I'm not at the feast, then I'll know that he was planning on killing me at the feast. It was the time where he knew that he would see me, the, ne- the next opportune time that he would have. But then they formulated a plan. Listen, i got to get this information to you, David. So here's what they said. I'll go to the feast. I'll find out what's going on. I'll, I'll, I'll do this test. And then I want you to hide out in the field for a couple of days. Don't really go home. Hide out in the field. And then I'll come out and I'll have bow practice, bow and arrows. And I'll shoot my arrows. And then I'll bring a little boy with me, young lad. And I'll tell him as he's going out to get him. If I say, no, they're over to the side of you, over to your side, then you'll know that everything's okay. Come on back and you can, things will go back to the way they were. But if I say, no, the arrows have gone beyond you, then you'll know that my dad is angry with you and planning to kill you. Remember, that's what we saw happen. The arrow, David's hiding out in the field. Here comes Jonathan. He shoots. You can just imagine how David's heart dropped the moment the arrow went beyond. The boy collected the arrows, left the area. Jonathan and David met, and they said goodbye. And David promised Jonathan that he would not hurt him or his family. And they left that way. So here's David. We left him. He was in a trial. He was on the run for his life. But we talked about how this trial was necessary because David wasn't born a man after God's own heart. David had to become a man after God's own heart. And this trial that he was going through was going to be one of the things, one of many things that would develop him and bring him to a place where he would become a man after God's own heart. See, David was just like us. His relationship with the Lord needed to grow because up until this point, he had experienced success. After all, who'd he slay? Goliath. The Philistines? No problem. I can take care of them. You need a couple hundred killed? No problem. David's got it. Everything he touched, he was victorious at. Well, now all of a sudden, he finds himself not being the hunter, but the hunted. He's literally on the run for his life. David had experienced this fame and victory, and now he would experience desolation and isolation. These are things that are necessary to become a man or a woman after God's own heart. It's because in these places that he's going to learn to be that type of man that seeks God. You see, David here on trial, I mean, on, on, in this trial, running for his life, we're going to find that he's going to begin, well, he's not going to have a real good beginning. You see, because I believe in my heart, David's trying to figure out what God's doing. 
Matter of fact, I don't doubt for one moment he thinks God has abandoned him. Because remember, he knew that he was supposed to be the king of Israel. Samuel had anointed him with oil, the next king of Israel. And I think he's scratching his head going, God, I know I'm going here. I'm standing here, and he's expecting to go this way. And God says, no, 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 you're going to go this way. You'll get there, but you're going to get there my way. So David's on the run for his life. We pick it up in chapter 21, verse 1. Now David came to Nob, to Ahimelech, the priest. And Ahimelech was afraid when he met David. And he said to him, why are you alone? And no one is with you. So running for his life, David flees to Nob. It's a city of priests. If the priests are there, what else is there? The tabernacle. While we can't trace exactly every city the tabernacle was set up in, we have a pretty good inclination that because this is where the priests were living at this time, that the tabernacle was set up there. So in his desperate situation in need of guidance, David flees to the house of God. Good job, David. Good place. That's where we need to be thinking the same thing. We need to be fleeing to the house of God in our desperate situation, in our need for guidance, in our need for food, because we're going to find that he's hungry, in his need for protection. David flees to the house of God. He's running to the right place, but we're going to see that his heart is in the wrong place. He's got the right idea by fleeing to the house of God, but we're going to see as we study through this chapter, his heart is in the wrong place. Oh, we can learn from that. We too can come into the house of God with our heart in the wrong place. We too can come into church and expect to hear from God and expect to see God and expect to get the direction. But if our heart is not in the right place with God, we're going to be just like David. We could be just like David. We could turn into this. And I want to show you what he does. He comes, the priest, the priest is afraid. Why, is, why would the priest be afraid of David? Notice the question he asks. Why are you alone and no one is with you? He was afraid because David was alone. That was abnormal in that culture. David was a captain over thousands. Why is the captain of the army running by himself? He should have his soldiers with him. Wait a minute, this is the king's son-in-law. Why doesn't he have an entourage with him? Why is he all by himself? So naturally the priest, something's not right. And he is, he, and, and something is not right. So he asks him, why are you alone? It's not normal for it to be this way. And David answers in verse 2. He says, so David said to Ahimelech, the priest, the king has ordered me on some business. And he said to me, don't let anyone know anything about the business on which I send you or what I have commanded you. And I have directed my young men to such and such a place. Now, therefore, what have you on hand? Give me five loaves of bread in my hand or whatever can be found. Did David tell the truth? He's talking to the pastor. He's talking to the priest. The priest says, what are you doing alone? He goes, well, I'm on, I'm, I'm on a secret business. The king set me on a secret meeting. Where's all your people? Well, they're at such and such a place. I can't tell you. It's top secret. You don't have clearance. I can't tell you. But I need some food. But David didn't tell the truth. Do you see where his heart's in the wrong place? You know, David told three lies there. The first one he told is the king has ordered me on some business. The second one he told is don't let anyone know anything about the business which I send you. The third one was my young men are in such and such a place. But wait a minute, Rob, he's on the run for his life. Is it okay to lie under these circumstances? In many ways, we can understand why David lied. We can even sympathize with him. And many of us may have done the same thing or even something worse in the same situation. At the same time, you will see next time we meet in the next chapter, David is going to come to horribly regret 
the lies that he's telling. We're going to see as all of the priests are going to be killed. All the people of the city are going to be killed. How should David have handled this? Why couldn't he have gone in and told the truth? Why couldn't he have gone to the priest and said, listen, Ahimelech, i got to tell you what's going on. Saul's trying to kill me. This is what's going on. But you know I've been anointed by God to be king of Israel. Why couldn't he lay it all out there? Because he wasn't relying on God. He was relying on himself. You see, David was formulating his own plan at this point. God's plan wasn't working. God's plan had failed. He was in a position in this trial in his life where he didn't see where God was going to... There's no way God can make me successful now. I'm going to be dead before I ever become king of Israel. So, he, so what he does is the same thing we would do. I can do this. How can I work this out? I know. I'm going to go to the, I'm going to go to the tabernacle. I'm going to get some food. And I, I'm hungry. And I'm going to talk to the priest. And I'm going to get some things that I need. It's exactly what he does. David ran to the right place and going to the tabernacle. But he came with the wrong heart. David didn't have the faith that he had when he killed Goliath, did he? David must have been thinking God made a mistake. This wasn't the way to the throne. David wasn't relying on God's ability. Instead, he's relying on his own ability and his ability to lie through the situation as if God can't handle this. David must have thought these drastic times required drastic measures. I like that the Bible records this because it tells us the truth about who David was. It tells us his mistakes. It shows us his sin. You see, the truth is he's lying here. He's struggling here. He's, he's going through a really hard time. And the Bible doesn't hide that. You see, if man was to write a book about the life of David, it would be all the good things. It wouldn't dare. We don't, we, that's how we write books about ourselves. We write all the good things, all the things that make us look good. We wouldn't write something that makes us look bad. But you know what this makes David look? Human. It makes him look human. Because when I asked the question, is it okay to lie in these circumstances? Some of us said, yeah. It's, it's, it's a life or death situation. I don't blame him for doing it. I'm not blaming him for doing it. I just say, I don't think he had to lie to do it. God's word is true. And God's word was, you will become the next king of Israel. Period. David forgot that. Because he couldn't see how it would possibly play out. He's an ordinary man who made the same mistakes that we do. But he is still being used by God. Praise God, huh? We can make mistakes like this. He's lying to the priest. But he's making a mistake. But God's not done with David yet. You see, this is the process of preparation that he has to go through. He's being prepared. He's being prepared. You can't just take over the people of God and have the heart of God without being prepared by God. You can't just take over God's people. I'm going to lead God's people with God's heart if I haven't been properly prepared. And you're not born that way. Just like we're not born to accomplish what God has laid out for us. We have to be prepared for it. David's getting prepared as we read this. He's in the preparation process. He needed to endure this hardship to strengthen his faith. Essentially, David and his faith are being refined and they're being tested. We also see that he's hungry. He asks for some food. Now, therefore, what have you on hand? Give me five loaves of bread in my hand or whatever can be found. And the priest answers in verse 4. The priest answered David and said, There is no common bread on hand. There's only holy bread. If young men have at least kept themselves from women, from, from women, the holy bread. He says, David, we don't have any regular bread. We don't have any normal bread. All we have is holy bread. It's the tabernacle. All we have is what's called the show bread. That's all that we have. 
The showbread in the, in the holy place, not the holy of holies, but the holy of place, on the right side as you went in, the left side was the menorah, the candlestick. The left side, or the right side, was a table with the showbread on it. Leviticus chapter 24 tells us all about it. Turn there briefly. A few books to the left. Leviticus chapter 24. Keep your finger in 1 Samuel. Leviticus chapter 24, verse 5. It says this. You shall take fine flour, bake 12 cakes with it. Two-tenths of an ephah shall be in each cake. You shall set them in two rows, six in a row, on, pure, on the pure gold table before the Lord. You shall put pure frankincense on each row, that it may be on the bread for a memorial, an offering made by fire to the Lord. Every Sabbath he shall set it in order before the Lord continually, being taken from the children of Israel by an everlasting covenant. And it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in the holy place. For it is the most holy to him from the offerings of the Lord made by fire from a, by a perpetual statue. So there's 12 loaves of bread, each representing one of the 12 tribes of Israel. The bread was to be fresh and changed weekly. It was set on the table of showbread. It was not to be eaten casually. It was not to be taken lightly. It was meant to be eaten by the, by the priest. Now, the showbread. This is going to be interesting. The showbread, it literally means bread of faces. That's what showbread means. It's the bread associated with and to be eaten before the face of God. It's sharing bread, sharing... You've ever heard the term breaking bread? What does it mean if, I, if we're breaking bread, we're having fellowship, right? We're, we're enjoying a meal together. This show bread was a bread that was to be eaten by the priest, and it was, this, it was this breaking of bread with God. It was the picture of the 12 tribes, and what it literally showed, it showed that we're in fellowship with God. It was a picture of fellowship. When you eat with somebody, you're fellowshipping with them, right? The showbread showed God's fellowship with the nation of Israel, and it showed their, their fellowship with, a, with God. It, it literally means it's associated with and, and eaten before God. In that culture, eating together formed a bond of friendship that was permanent and sacred, breaking bread. Remember the Israelites wouldn't eat with somebody who was unclean? They wouldn't, they wouldn't have fellowship with somebody when clean. This bread in, this, in the holy place represents this fellowship with God. That's exactly, so, so literally, here's what it's telling us. David comes in and says, I'm hungry, I need food. The priest says, all I've got is showbread. So, but there's a picture, the showbread represents fellowship, right? Fellowship with God. So David's saying, I need food. His, he, we're going to see the priest give him the showbread. But really, what God's saying to David as he gives him the showbread? Essentially, God's speaking to David, and he's saying, I'm going to provide for your need of food. But because the bread represents fellowship with me, God's also saying, David, you need fellowship with me. David's in the trial. He's the one on the run. David says, I need food. I can't live this way. And God's saying, you can't live without fellowship with me. You need fellowship with me. So here's what he's saying. We, you and I, need to have fellowship with God represented by the showbread in our trials, in our difficult situations. We can't survive any other way. We might think we need bread, substance for our stomachs, but God's saying, spiritually, you need fellowship with me. You see, the bread, that's what it represents. God is pursuing David during this trial. Notice, David has sort of gone off on his own. David's gone off and making things up. He's lying to the priest, but God is still pursuing. God is still trying to show David what he needs. So David responds to Ahimelech's request. 
Because Ahimelech said, listen, it's holy bread. He can't take it casually. So at least tell me you guys haven't been defiled by women in the past you know, three days. And David answers in verse 5. He answered the priest and he said to him, Truly, women have been kept from us about three days since I came out. And the vessels of the young men are holy, and the bread is in effect common, even though it was consecrated in the vessel this day. Yep, we meet that requirement, Himalek. That's good. The bread's not on the table anymore, so just give it to us. We need to eat. In verse 6, so the priest gives him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the showbread, which had been taken from before the Lord, in order to put hot bread in its place on the day when it was taken away. David has a need for food, and God meets it. But God's also letting him know through the symbolism, the spiritual need that he has as well. And where David is lacking, because he doesn't have the faith that he had when he killed Goliath, he doesn't, he's not having the fellowship with God that he had when he killed Goliath either. He's missing that. The human need. Now, let me back up one second. Jesus refers to this very thing in book of Matthew. Remember? Matthew chapter 12, verse 1 through 8. Jesus' disciples were being criticized for breaking the religious custom by eating against the traditions. They were eating on the Sabbath day. And what did Jesus tell them? He, Jesus basically told them he approved in that passage of what Elimelech did. And he honored him by standing on, on the same ground. And essentially, Jesus is saying, listen, human need is greater than the religious custom. If a man is hungry, let him eat. Feed him. Don't throw the bread away or don't get rid of the bread. If you have a hungry person, feed them. He's saying the human need that someone has for food is greater than the religious custom because the disciples, remember how they were breaking the, breaking the Sabbath? They were gathering grain and they were doing it in their hands and, and that was considered work because they were taking the wheat and they were rubbing it in their hands and the, and the, and the, the husk was falling off and they were eating it. And the, and the Pharisees said, that's work. She just said, don't be ridiculous. Let them, let them eat. And he refers right back to this passage. Now, look at verse 7. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg, an Edomite, the chief of the herdsmen who belonged to Saul. So there's a guy there. His name's Doeg, but notice he's not an Israelite. He's an Edomite, which means he's a descendant of Esau. But notice he works for Saul in the capacity of being a chief herdsman. That means he's the boss of the shepherds, literally. Those, that position was known to be violent and cruel. So for whatever reason, and Bible scholars suggest that he was there to fulfill some sort of mandate that may have been placed on him. He wasn't there to serve the Lord at the tabernacle, but he sees David there, and he's going to be the one that tells Saul down the road in chapter 22 where David has been. In verse 9, I'm sorry, verse 8, David said to Ahimelech, Is there not here on hand a spear or a sword? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me because the king's business required haste. So he says to the priest, hey, you got any swords laying around here? You know, I thought you were working for the king, David. Yeah, but I left my sword at home. I left all my weapons. Matter of fact, I left all my weapons at home. You got anything I can borrow? Truth or a lie? Well, it's a half truth. He did leave in a hurry, right? But it's a half truth. It's a full lie, right? It's a half-truth, but it's a full lie. The priest said to him, look, verse 9, the sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Allah, there it is, wrapped up in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take, take, take that, take it. 
for there is no other except that one here. As if David didn't know where that sword was being kept. I mean, after all, he's the one that took it. It might have even been his idea to put it in the tabernacle. But I don't buy for a minute that David didn't know that the sword of Goliath was there. So David says, I need the sword of Goliath. I need it. And look what he replies at the end of verse 9. David said, there is none like it. Give it to me. Give it to me. There's none like it. Again, the Lord's providing for David's physical need. But David says it in a way, again, there is none like it. David needs a sword to defend himself. That sword, what's it represent? Victory. That's his lucky sword. Don't think for a moment that he was thinking, i got to get that sword. There's power in that. That that sword cut off the head of Goliath. It's got to be good for me. Perhaps he thought it would be his lucky sword. The power is not in a physical sword. The power is in the Lord. But again, as God meets his physical need, in spite of his lie, in spite of his own plan, God's also going to meet a spiritual need here as well. Because as Bible students, when we see the word sword, what do we think of? The word of God. Remember the armor of God in Ephesians 6? The sword of the spirit is the word of God, it tells us. So David is struggling in a trial. He says, I need food and protection. And God says, you need fellowship in the word. Get that. David's in his trial. He, doesn't, he thinks God's left him. He thinks he's been abandoned. I need food and protection. And God says, I'll give you food and protection. But what you really need is fellowship with me and you need the word of God. Man, is that a lesson for us or what? How many of us have been through a trial in life at one point or another? Everybody. Now, you don't need to raise your hands because I already know it. We've all been through a trial. Write this down. In the middle of a trial, I need fellowship with God and the word of God. Because you're not going to remember it when you're in the trial. That's what I need. Fellowship with God and the word of God. See, he thought the power would be in the food. He thought the power would be in the sword. But the power is in the fellowship. The power is in the word. I think God's telling David this. Look, David, I know times are tough. I know you're suffering. I know it's hard. I know you don't understand what's going on. But I think if God were saying it here, he'd say, be patient. I'll meet your physical needs. But what you really need is fellowship with me and my word. That's what you really need, David. Oh, we need to hear it too. You know, we might not be running for our life, but we might be in a difficult time tonight might be in a difficult season. Maybe we're coming out of one. Maybe we're getting ready to go into one. Who knows? Know this. God will meet your physical needs. But your spiritual needs are far more important than your physical needs. And not only will he meet your physical needs, he'll meet your spiritual needs as well. This has a happy ending for David. He's not done going through the trial, but it's going to turn out okay for him. At this point, David doesn't get the spiritual pursuit of God. He doesn't realize it. You see, he's still on his own agenda. He's still on his own plan. He's trying to figure things out for himself. He's told four whoppers of lies. He's trying to work it out. He's got it under control. After all, he's a mighty warrior. He's got his own abilities. He can, he can do this. He hasn't seen it yet. He doesn't know what God's doing yet. And look at verse 10. So David arose, and we can know that he's got his sword in his hand and his belly full. And he fled that day from before Saul, and he went to Achish, 
the king of Gath. So he left and he fled and he went to Gath, the king of Gath. Is there a problem with that? Do you know who was from Gath? Okay, can you say Goliath of Gath with me? Okay, so he flees the tabernacle there with the priest, Ahimelech, and he heads over to Gath. That's the enemy. That's a Philistine country. He decides, well, I'm not safe in my own country, so I might as well join the enemy. I might as well join the enemy. I'm going over to the enemy's side. I really don't like the way things are going on my side. It doesn't seem that God can protect me. He doesn't see the hand of God in the fact that he's escaped death a number of times. His faith is being questioned and shattered right now. So he goes and decides, I think it would be a really good idea if I went to the enemy. And I'll just join forces with the enemy. That's what I could do. And I can defeat, I can, maybe he, this is just my conjecture. Maybe he's thinking, I'll go to the king of Gath. I'll get him on my side. We'll go kill Saul. Then I can be the king of Israel. Perhaps he's trying to do it all by himself. Whatever the reason is, whyever he went there, this was stupid. Because he's in the flesh. He's not following God. He's following his own abilities, his own... This is how he thinks he can solve this problem. So he arrives in Gath. In verse 11, the servants of Achish said to him, Is this not David, the king of the land? Did they not sing of him to one another in dances, saying, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands? Now David took these words to heart. And was very much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. Maybe he thought he could sneak in undercover. They wouldn't recognize him. But they're playing his favorite song. They get there and he turns on the radio and he hears it. Saul has slain his thousands and David has slain his tens of thousands. Now they didn't really have a radio. I'm just kidding. But this is the song. Now, I thought that was music to his ears when he was in Israel. When he was, that was great. He's victorious. Now his enemy is singing that. And what does he say? Uh-oh. If they know that I've slain tens of thousands of Philistines, they're singing the song too, then I'm in big, big trouble. Now, just briefly, if you look down in uh, verse 13, you don't need to read it, but just read down in verse 13, it's going to tell us that David was in their hands. So what we find out is that when David gets here, David gets to Gath, they're singing his favorite song, He's in their hands, which means he's in custody. He's, now he's gone to the enemy willingly, and now the enemy has him under arrest, if you will. He tried to do things his way. He relied on his own abilities. He told lies. He relied on his own plans to join the enemy. And now he finds himself in the custody of his enemy. David, how did you get here? You know, David started out a lot like Saul, didn't he? Started out making some good choices. After all, he slayed Goliath, had victory over the Philistines. Saul started out good too, made some good choices. Then he started to get some popularity. And what happened? Saul made some bad choices. David seems to be following in the same footsteps. Will it turn around for David? Turn with me to Psalm 56. To the right, Psalm 56. says this the very opening paragraph it says to the chief musician set to the silent dove in distant lands uh, Michum of David when the Philistines captured him in Gath okay 
So this is what he wrote while he was in custody in Gath. Look at his heart. Be merciful to me, O God, for man would swallow me up. Fighting all day, he oppresses me. My enemies would hound me all day, for there are many who fight against me, O Most High. Notice he starts out in verse 1 with what? Be merciful. You never call for justice when you're the one being judged, do you? What do you call for? Mercy. God, judge him, but be merciful to me. That's what, God, I want your mercy, but you can judge him. I don't like him or her or whatever, that person. Get rid of him. Zap him. Go on. Get him. But when it's me, Lord, give me your mercy. You see, David is coming to a place where he realizes he's crying out to God. This is the point where David has been living his own plan. He's been doing his own thing. We're right here in this song. We're going to see his heart. He cries out to God. Remember back in, you don't need to turn back there, but just remember, it says in verse 12 in 1 Samuel, he was very much afraid. He's afraid for his life. He's scared to death. He's very much afraid. Now look at verse 2. My enemies hound me all day, for there are many who fight against me almost high. Look at verse 3. Whenever I am afraid, that's him. Whenever I'm afraid, I will trust in you. In God, I will praise his word. He got it. He realized that I'll praise his word. In God I have put my trust, I will not fear. They're opposites. I can't be fearing and trusting in God at the same time. What can flesh do to me? All day they twist my words. Their evil thoughts are against me for evil. They gather together. They hide. They mark my steps. They lie in wait for my life. Shall they escape by iniquity? In anger cast down the peoples, O God. You number my wanderings, put my tears into your bottle. Are they not in your book? When I cry out to you, then my enemies will turn back. This I know because God is for me. Do you see the change of heart? Rather than a man who's running, trying to do it himself, making up lies, he realizes God is for me. In God, I will praise his, what? His word. In the Lord, I will praise his word, not trusting in the sword of Goliath, but instead trusting in the sword of the spirit and trusting the word of God. In God I have put my trust. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Vows made to you are binding upon me, O God. I will render praises to you, for you have delivered my soul from death. Notice the spiritual condition. It's not about his body anymore. It's about his soul. He says, God, you've delivered my soul to death. Have you not kept my feet from falling that I may walk before God in the light of the living? You see, when David went to the tabernacle, to the priest, it was about his body. It was about food. It was about protection. Now he's realizing it's about his soul. David has a change of heart there. He realizes it's the word of God. Go with me back to 1 Samuel. You want to know the bad news? Even though his heart has changed, his circumstances haven't. He's still there. Because at the end of his change of heart, when he opens his eyes from prayer, what does he see? The prison that still contains him. But now he's facing it with a different outlook. He's facing it from a different perspective. He's still in the custody of the Philistines, but instead, he's no longer afraid. He's no longer fearful. Instead, he's doing what? He's praising God. He's worshiping God. He's crying out to God. He's praying to God. I believe he realized, I've messed up. I believe David at this point, when he writes this psalm, he's realizing, you know what? I really blew it. 
I should have trusted God. I didn't. I've tried to do it on my own. And I believe it's a psalm of repentance where he's saying, Lord, forgive me. Be merciful on me, O God. Well, he goes back. Go back to 1 Samuel. Verse 13. So he changed his behavior before them. Pretended madness in their hands. Scratched on the doors of the gate. And let his saliva fall down on his beard. What? What's he doing? He's acting crazy. He's acting like he's insane. He's acting like a madman. He changed his behavior before them. Notice the change in David. He went from being terribly scared. Now he's got a plan. Only now he's letting God do the work. God's doing this. This is, this is God saying, I'm going to do this. He changed his behavior before them. He's acting crazy. Verse 14, then Akish said to his servants, look. You see, the man is insane. Why have you brought him to me? Do I have need of a madman that you have brought this fellow to play the madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? What's he saying? Get him out of here. I don't want this guy here. Send him back. He's worthless. Let him go. Get, get rid of him. Let him go. Get rid of him. I don't want him in my house. That's victory for David. He finds himself in custody. His heart turns, God leads him out of custody, and now he's on his way back from the mistake that he made. How does that leave David's heart? If we're thinking right, he should be praising God right now, right? God, you've done an amazing thing. I'm on the run for my life. You provided food for me. You provided protection for me. I, made a re I did a really dumb thing by going to the enemy, by going to Gath. I thought I was going to die there, but I turned my life back over to you. I gave it all back to you. I said I wasn't going to fear. I was going to trust in you. Lord, you're doing something amazing here. I want to turn back to Psalm, but this time go to 34. Don't you love when you tie the Psalms into the Scriptures? How you see actually the heart behind what's being written. Psalm 34 is being written. It tells us there at the beginning, a Psalm of David when he pretended madness before Abimelech, who drove him away and he departed. Look what he's saying. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul make its boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear of it and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Happy, right? He's, he, he, just got, he just got let go. He's being driven out. The Lord has redeemed him. The Lord has restored him. And now he's praising God. Let's just continue reading. It's good. I sought the Lord. That's what he did. In custody, I sought the Lord. He heard me. He delivered me from all my fears. They looked to him and were radiant, and their faces were not ashamed. The poor man, that's him, cried out, and the Lord heard him, saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps all around those who fear him, and he delivers them. Taste and see the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. There is no, there is no want to those who fear him. The young lions back and suffer hunger. And it goes on. Come, little children, listen to me. I'll teach you the fear of the Lord. And he goes on for the rest of the 22 verses. Look at verse 22. The Lord redeems the soul of his servants. And none of those who trust in him shall be condemned. What we see taking place, David is in this test. David was lying. David was not trusting in the Lord. He was making his own plans. He had literally joined forces with the enemy. He had gone to the enemy's side. But God was still speaking to David. And this is what he was saying. He said, David, I know things are difficult. I know you don't understand what's going on. I know you can't possibly see how these circumstances are going to lead you to the throne of Israel. 
But David, I'm preparing you. I'm preparing you for something. I want you to fellowship with me. I want you to know my word. Don't trust in the sword of Goliath, David. Trust in my word. I've anointed you king over Israel. That's my word. And it works the exact same way for us. Because if you're not in a trial, you're going to be coming into one soon. Or you're coming out of one. Inevitably in life, you're going to go from one trial to the next. The only question is how long will you spend not in one? Some will be large and some will be small. But these principles that David is learning are the same things that we need to learn to get us through our trials. What do I need to survive a trial? I need fellowship with God. I need the Word of God. Without that, I'm going to be like David, relying on my own strength and my own ability, my own plans. I might even join the enemy if I'm not careful. It's the fellowship. It's the Word of God. If you fellowship with God in the Word of God and live the plan of God... Your faith in God will lead you through the difficult times of life. If I fellowship with God, in the, in the word of God, because that's where we fellowship with him. Fellowship with God in prayer, but fellowship with God in his word. That's where he's going to speak to you, in the word of God. And I live the plan of God. My faith in God will lead me through the difficult times of this life. When I look at somebody like Vicki and Dave, difficult time? Yeah. That's not the only difficult time going on in this fellowship, in this church. Many of you are, are, have your own difficult times. And what gets you through it? What keeps you from getting bitter? It's fellowship with God. It's the word of God. What allows you to, why do you forgive somebody that does you some, does, does you, wrongs you in some way? Because God tells you to. Not because you want to. Because you realize there's a reason for that. So I want to encourage you tonight. If you're going through a difficult time, ask yourself, have I been in fellowship with God? Have I been in the word of God? Because it'll change your outlook, just like it changed David. The fellowship of God and the word of God produced the worship of God in David's life. It produced the repentance in David's life. As he wrote the Psalms, we get to see his heart. His fellowship and the word produced the repentance in his life. And that's what we need to be too. So I encourage you, if you're not going, if you're not going through something difficult, praise the Lord. If it's a good season, praise God for it. Worship him for that. But if it's a tough season, if there's something going on, something bothering you, something eating at you, ask yourself, am I in the word? I have fellowship with God. Because if you'll get in the word and you'll fellowship, then you'll be able to worship. And that works the opposite. If you're having trouble worshiping God, ask yourself, have I been in the word of God? And am I fellowshipping with God? Father, we thank you for David. Lord, I thank you for his life that it shows us that he's not perfect lord he's going through difficult seasons just like we are and he makes bad choices and that's not the first bad choice we're going to see him make to lie to the priest but lord you're still using him you're still teaching him you're still preparing him and lord we're just like him we make bad choices too can we know that we don't have to be perfect to be used by god because perfection is not going to happen. But instead, Lord, may we be available, available to be used by you just the way that we are. And Lord, may we be moved to fellowship with you. May we be moved to be in your word. And may that lead us to be able to worship. For you deserve our worship, Lord. We can't navigate this life without you. or We certainly, many of us have tried, and it just doesn't work out real well for us. But yet it seems so easy to slip away from that place of fellowship. It seems so easy to just not make that 
time in your word. But may that be the priority in our life. In Jesus' name, amen.